What is government for? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jason Kiznicki. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Jason Kuznicki. Jason Kuznicki is a research fellow at the Cato Institute and the editor of Cato Books and of Cato Unbound, which is the Cato Institute's online journal of debate. He earned a PhD in history from Johns Hopkins University in 2005. His first book, Technology and the End of Authority, What is Government For?, surveys Western political theory from a libertarian perspective. It will serve to inform a lot of our discussion today. Jason, thanks very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you. So Jason, in each episode, as we were discussing, we start with a question and just go wherever the conversation leads us. So I'll toss it right over to you. What is government for? Well, a lot of people have had a lot of theories, and that's uh, what structures my book. The trouble with these theories and the argument that I advance in the book is that none of the theories is able to provide a satisfying case that government is, in fact, the best means to any particular end. And because of that, we are always left at some point in any argument that favors government, we are left saying, we know of nothing better than this. And that's a big problem because that doesn't mean that we have a knockdown case in favor of government. It means that we have a very potentially defeatable case for government. Government has only at best a provisional legitimacy. And at the same time, we know very well that government entails coercion and coercion is morally objectionable. And as I read through your book, I noticed in the first part where you uh, trace the history of political thought around this, uh, a lot of the uh, thinkers actually believed that the state came before the individual. And that was the crucial difference that struck me between what libertarians or classical liberals would think versus some of these early thinkers, is that the, the state was actually on at least a hierarchy of values be, before the individual. And as a matter of fact, the family itself, in, in some cases, was actually the smallest uh, unit in society, not the individual. That was very interesting to me. Yes. And when you say before, we have to be really careful about the terminology because, of course, the United States of America existed before I did. Mm -hmm. It uh, existed before my parents or my grandparents existed, of course. Uh, that's not exactly what we mean. We mean something rather different when we say before. We mean ontologically or, or morally prior to the individual. Uh, does the state have some sort of of higher order uh, existence uh, with regard to morality or some sort of higher order existence with regard to uh, to reality itself, which uh, some certainly seem to uh, want to claim. Plato, for example, does seem to want to claim that the state is a kind of organism that endures uh, over many, many lifetimes and should be thought of as such and therefore should command more respect than any particular individual uh, when those two uh, entities come into disagreement. Could you go into any other thinkers that thought the same thing? I, before we jump into sort of what is discussed in the latter part of your book, which is ultimately how to view the state and, and what some potential solutions to this problem of the state, of people looking at the state as a set bundle, is uh, I'd like you to trace some other thinkers, if you could, and, and how they thought about this. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, Machiavelli is one of the most explicitly uh, explicitly pro-state uh, thinkers that uh, I look at, and uh, his his entire theory of politics is, in fact, that whatever 
is good for the state is the good, like capital G good, we might say. And that uh, when an individual conflicts with the state, we should understand that there is a conflict between a lesser good and a greater good. And the greater good always must be the one that prevails if we are, if we are to be good people at all. It is, uh, it is a view that I don't think that uh, too many people sincerely subscribe to, but it's often resorted to as a matter of convenience that uh, people will say, well, the state represents the greater good or aims at the greater good, even if it's not necessarily always and by definition the greater good. And uh, this gives a lot of weight to to arguments that uh, will say things like, well, you must follow the law. The law is the law, therefore it commands our respect. It has moral force. And libertarians will generally say, well, wait a minute, let's actually ask about what the law's effects are. Let's ask about whether those effects are preferable to a state in which the law was different from what it is. Let's ask about these effects with regard to uh, or in comparison to a state where that law does not exist at all. Is it too much of a simplification to say that a lot of the earlier thinkers pretty much locked in tandem what the law is and what justice was? There's a very close identification between the two of them. To uh, get back to Plato uh, for just a moment in in his dialogue, The Statesman, uh, the question is asked, why is it that we ought to follow the law? And the answer that is provided is that laws exist because they were crafted by someone who is wiser than you are. And they command our allegiance because of that superior wisdom. And uh, Plato goes on to advance a theory of, of law that posits the existence of rare individuals who come onto the world historical scene, maybe only one in every generation all across the world, he thinks. And and these uh, statesmen, as they are called, have by right the ability to make laws. The rest of us do not. And if we're not following the laws as they were promulgated by a statesman, we may be doing a know, good or a bad thing, but uh, what really should command our our uh, allegiance in any case is if we if we have access to the laws provided by a statesman, we ought to be following those. And I was very surprised just how far some of that thought went. I believe it was in Plato's work, Laws, that you, you went over the fact that it, it got down to a point where there was almost like a, a prescription of how uh, a house should be arranged, how many children people should have, like down to that point where, where people were not just trying to run a society or provide a framework for it, but people were actually almost prescribing how it should be ordered oh, down absolutely. to the, the last person. Yeah. Absolutely. There are prescribed numbers of families with prescribed numbers of children. There are prescribed numbers of people in different occupations. The idea of scientism in government seemingly predates modern science by many centuries. We wanted there to be this kind of technology of government long before technology was able to do much of anything all that impressive. Uh, We wanted there to be a science of eugenics long before there was a science of genetics. We did not think uh, in in uh, terms of uh, feasibility, seemingly, but rather, especially theorists of government like Plato uh, had no doubt that these things were feasible somehow and uh, went on to recommend them. We might ask nowadays about uh, 
about evidence, about how do we know that government can ensure that there will be only good births in the city. We might ask, well, what about unplanned births? Or what about uh, people who uh, get pregnant without the state's approval? And what do we do with them? And these are not interesting questions, seemingly, to Plato. The The idea is that there will be perfect compliance with a, a uh, perfect technology of, of uh, social functioning, and uh, that will be that. And uh, we've spent a long time in the history of political theory, uh, more or less at that point, and only gradually coming around to, to questioning it. And, and it struck me as I was reading through that first part of your book that... Uh... Perhaps that what was more appealing to these thinkers was the concept of order in and of itself, rather than actually understanding what government is and what it does and what its function should be. Although they may have uh, provided their thoughts in the context of understanding what government was, it seemed that they were heavily concentrated on order. And I'm wondering if you think that a lot of these tendencies came from sort of the, the human desire for order, at least in our personal lives, and maybe perhaps that extended over to what they saw a larger institution society's role to be. And I think that's true. I think that there's a certain aesthetic to it almost that uh, we would like society to have a beautiful order. We would like all of the parts to seem like they are efficient and rational, that they are well-fitted means to whatever end we have in view. And that uh, because of that, First of all, the society is very, very stable. And second, we have a safe place within it for ourselves or for our family. And these are both more or less natural desires for people to have. Uh, we would like a society to be, to be beautiful. We would like a society to have a place for us that we can count on and, and, and take some measure of security in. The trouble with that is that it leads us to, in in a lot of cases, a dead end. There is no science of uh, human eugenics uh, patterned on numerology, which is ultimately what Plato is talking about. And uh, in the Renaissance, there's a, a political theorist uh, named Tommaso Campanella, whom I also talk about, who's a, a neoplatonist and who believes that his uh, science of government can be founded on astrology. Uh, we nowadays, don't have anything like that belief, but it's it's easy to see how such a belief would be appealing. It appeals to uh, our own insecurities. It appeals to our own desire for stability. And, and a lot of this, a lot of these thinkers seem to also uh, come back to the idea that the government is sort of this entity or institution that kind of is always this this one giant mass of things. It's always going to exist, and then it's just up to a bunch of people to switch out and uh, throw out different positions and run the thing. It doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, understanding that there are components of government, and that sort of gets into you, the part of the book where you explain that the state's, in, in fact, a bundle yes. rather than just this one large monolith. Yes, uh, the state is a bundle. And what I mean by that is that uh, it has... Uh, if we look at if we look at the state not normatively or or prescriptively, but if we look at it in terms of what it's actually done, if we look at it descriptively, we find that states get up to all kinds of different things. States uh, prohibit 
discrimination, states require discrimination. States prohibit alcohol, states subsidize alcohol, on and on and on and on. They, there are so many different contradictory things that states have been tasked with doing that uh, we have to wonder whether there's any essence to this entity at all. And I would suggest that perhaps there is not. Uh, we don't necessarily uh, have any particular unified end that we can say all of these different uh, entities throughout history have been pointing at. So when we're looking at the state, it's more proper to look at it as a variety of components that that change over time rather than one large entity that just does something. Like, for instance, goes to war or uh, in Canada, for instance, provides a health care system or, or it gets itself involved in education. In reality, we have multiple departments, multiple different people, multiple sets of interests all at work in different ways. Yeah, and this this has a really important payoff for libertarians because we can ask about whether any particular component really belongs in the bundle or not. We can ask whether using the state for this particular purpose is the best that we can do. Is this something that uh, requires the state or not? And uh, when we look at the various purposes to which states have been put over time, I think the natural response to that very large aggregate of different purposes is that uh, we should be skeptical. We should doubt a little bit when the state just happens to be the answer to all of these different random purposes and causes and uh, ask whether uh, maybe there is a tendency to reach for uh, security at work here rather than uh, any sort of uh, really sound argument that this is what ought to be done. So when it comes to looking at the various functions of the state and, and whether or not they're useful and if certain functions should continue, although it may be a nice slogan, and a nice catchphrase, you, you don't think it's very helpful if people say I'm against the state or the government. You actually think that even people against its various functions should probably take a step back and look at them as various functions rather rather than this monolith. So although proponents of government certainly sometimes speak of it as, a, as it's sort of like this monolith and this one entity, a lot of opponents of various government doings and functions also seem to treat it that way. Yes. Yes, uh, it, it is possible to uh, flip the script a little bit too much and go from thinking of the state as uh, not the march of God on earth, as Hegel called it, but as the march of the devil himself on earth, mm -hmm. and that every single possible thing the state could ever do is always unnecessarily bad. I think that that is, uh, is also taking things too far. I think uh, we may not have a satisfying answer to the question of, of whether a state is necessary. Uh, I, I go into this in the book using the term agnarchism, uh, right. combining agnostic and anarchist. I, I don't know whether utopia has a state. I think it's somewhat immodest to say that anyone can know the answer to that question. Right. And I also think a really interesting concept in your book is also the idea that the state almost in a certain way has to be put up to like a, a, uh, at least some form of scientific approach philosophically. You talk about falsifying the state. I thought that was very interesting. The, the idea that, uh, and I actually have a quote right here, is, is you said, the question of when to resort to the state must remain permanently unsettled, always open to reconsideration on every point 
where we may formally have concluded that use of the state is indeed necessary. And that's very interesting. And I also believe it works on the flip side as well. As, as I was reading the book, it, it occurred to me that uh, it, it's also not okay helpful to basically sit there and go, oh, the state's all bad. As you were saying before, we need to really look at the different components and, and put it up to not only a conversation, but the test of the facts. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I concede without argument that states always involve coercion. I have right. no disagreement there. They do. Uh, other systems involve coercion also. And if coercion is the reason that the state is bad, then when coercion occurs in non-state institutions, those institutions also are bad. And we have to ask then uh, when it is a matter of our uh, moral evaluation of different sets of social institutions, uh, whether this or that stateless set of institutions in fact entails a still worse set of coercive uh, measures than the state itself. It's not clear to me that uh, all forms of anarchy are created equal, and it's not clear to me that any one of them is necessarily more workable than a state. I would like it if they were. I would welcome a uh, system in which there was less coercion than a state system, I do not claim to know how to do this, and I am somewhat skeptical about people who think that they do. Do you, do you think libertarians generally are too quick to jump at the idea that so something would not work from the state, or is that still a good default position from the libertarian perspective? Well, it's often the case that state solutions don't work. It, right. Uh, it's often the case because uh, uh, of uh, some of the things that we were talking about earlier. There is a presumption that a state solution can work, and that presumption often tends to blind us to the uh, possibility of, uh, of non-state arrangements that might achieve the same end. Uh, when we look at the broad sweep of Western political thought since Plato, the vast majority of the big canonical thinkers have mm -hmm. been much more state-focused than uh, than certainly libertarians, but I think then most ordinary people would be just going by their own intuitions. Right. The, the default assumption for them was that the state would always work. If we just pointed in the right direction and said we want to achieve these intentions, then the results would just line right up with it. Yes, yes. And, and this is something that uh, one often sees, particularly in revolutionary uh, ideological movements. So uh, Marxism believes Yes, that there will be an eventual stateless society, but in the meantime, the state needs needs to do a whole lot of work, and it will be effective in doing that work, and it will succeed in its goal if only we give it as much power as as it needs, and if we can somehow prevent the sabotage of the plan by uh, the uh, the bourgeoisie and by the the capitalists. So the latter part of your book where you basically discuss how to look at the state and, and what may be some uh, potential uh, ways that the state could actually be uh, 
whittled down where we ultimately bring in this idea of technology and how technology can enable us to look at different alternatives to not the state but but different components of the state and i, fa- I found that very interesting you, you what i got from the book was that if if at first we look at the state as not a set bundle but rather a bundle which has multiple components and then start piece by piece looking at how progress and technology comes into play and how it can basically replace aspects of the bundle that was very interesting to me i i think that that is the work that a future generation of libertarians uh will have to devote itself to if we ever uh gain the kind of cultural salience that uh, that would allow us to do it and allow our ideas to be more widely adopted that uh, there's a lot of testing left to be done right. and uh, we don't know exactly how utopia will handle contracts we don't know exactly how utopia will handle money uh, we don't know exactly how utopia will handle even uh, traffic on roads mm-hmm. uh, but but uh, this is this is something that we ought to see as uh, the work ahead of us. This is uh, this is the type of, uh, if you will, piecemeal social planning that we ought to be considering and engaging in privately even today. Can can these uh, projects work on a small scale? And if they can, uh, might we migrate away from the government uh, provided solution? Uh, and might that migration be something that's appealing even to people who aren't libertarians? We're going to take a quick break right now, Jason, but I think we're going to resume this conversation right where we left it off. So I'm talking to Jason Kuznicki here, and we're on The Curious Task. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Bryce Tingle, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jason Kuznicki here today. We're uh, talking uh, about what is government for and a lot of the discussions informed by his book, uh, Technology and, and the End of Authority. Uh, J- Jason, during the break, uh, you mentioned that, of course, I had brought up a lot of the thinkers in uh, in history that were uh, proponents of the state. They very much thought that if we pointed the state in the right direction, it could achieve what it needed to achieve. But of course, you reminded me that there was a lot of intellect- intellectuals and intellectual movements that were very skeptical of the state. I was wondering if you want- wanted to get in- into those. Yes, the uh, skeptics of state power go way back. Unfortunately, uh it's been the case that uh, states command a large amount of resources, and because of that, uh, they tend to extend patronage to uh, people who are favorable to state solutions and to the power of of kings. If you're a king, that's the type of uh, thinking that you're generally inclined to pay for. Uh, but even if we look at ancient Greece, we can find uh, prominent critics of of the state, at least by implication and often uh, often quite explicitly. So uh, one of them is Diogenes the Cynic, who uh, was one of the great wits of ancient Greece and uh, whose uh, criticism of state power was essentially that there's a higher law than the state. There's an intelligible moral law that unites people 
across states and that uh, gives people a common sense of right and wrong by which the actions of states uh, may be legitimately criticized. Diogenes was a contemporary of Alexander the Great, and there's a, a famous exchange between the two of them that has come down to us in several different uh, versions, but uh, uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, story, at least as we understand it, is that uh, Diogenes was uh, out in the sun and uh, was uh, working on some geometry problems, perhaps. And Alexander stood over him and said, "Diogenes, ask any favor you choose of me." And Diogenes replied, "Please get out of my light," <laughs> uh, which is a fantastic thing to ask to the guy who had just conquered the entire known world. And it suggests a certain uh, disdain, yes, for material positions, or material possessions, but also for, for political authority and political power. Uh, if Diogenes had asked to be put in charge of governing Syria, presumably uh, Alexander might have, might have been willing to grant it, at least by implication. Uh, Diogenes had no such interest. Uh, so Alexander said in reply to this, if I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes, obviously trying to indicate some respect for this view. And Diogenes said, if I were not Diogenes, I would also wish to be Diogenes. <laughs> It seems that a lot of these earlier thinkers at least started to understand that there was nothing uh, sacred about the government or the rulers themselves, that in fact that they were, were just people and they were just people doing another kind of job in society. It happened to be, unfortunately, be ruling over people at that time. But but that once again, in reality, that they were just components of a larger structure. And as you said, they are ultimately bound, and at least a lot of them viewed it this way, by, by some form of a morals or justice beyond just, just their own word. Yes, and uh, when you say jobs in society, this uh, brings up another anecdote from Diogenes' life, which was that at one point in his life, he was captured and sold as a slave. Hmm. And uh, he uh, was asked by the slave trader what work he could do. And he said, tell the people that if anyone would like to purchase a good master, I am available. <laughs> Which is to say, uh, I am I am someone who is capable of of ruling myself and presumably others. The law has put me in this absurd position of of being sold as a slave. However, uh, I do not really recognize its authority, and I'm going to have a bit of fun with that. Uh, the idea that rule is merely conventional, that it is merely an agreement between people rather than being something divine or something that is written in the numbers or the stars, this is a really important idea because it allows people to have some measure of criticism or some critical distance from, from the things that the state says. If you really believe that you're ruled by a god emperor, uh, you're going to have a hard time criticizing him. If you believe that you're ruled by a, a committee of your neighbors, and if you know your neighbors up close, uh, you may feel somewhat differently about their rule. Not only that, but, uh, but uh, it becomes possible to assert that there is an independent moral order 
by which their decisions can be praised or blamed. Right. I think that's a that's a very important point. There, there's a massive difference between, as you said, feeling like uh, ultimately, uh, along with your neighbors, you have some say in how things are running when it comes to the government or the society around you, uh, versus if someone claims to be God's representative on earth, like a king, let's say, that, that's, that's a little bit more difficult to argue with if you truly believe in that sort of, uh, either from a religious perspective or that sort of theory of justice. That's a bit of a different hill to, to climb. Yes, and, and we are very close now also to the uh, cosmopolitan uh, view in in political theory, which is to say the the view that uh, emphasizes the common humanity of all people as a basis for uh, cooperation and mutual understanding. Uh, we don't require a government to apprehend this common humanity. Uh, as as Cicero wrote, we derive from nature herself the impulse to love those to whom we have given birth. From this impulse is derived the sense of mutual attraction, which unites human beings as such. This also is bestowed by nature. The mere fact of their common humanity requires that one man should feel another man to be akin to him. Uh, we are a part of a common family. It is maybe a, a bit hackneyed to say that, but it does bear repeating, I think, in an age where uh, we now see uh, ethno-nationalism on the rise. Right. We see uh, a rising sense that Russia is for the Russians and uh, France is for the French and the United States is for the United Statesians or, or whatever it is that we are. Uh, but uh, we ought to ask uh, about what proper treatment for humans requires and take care that we extend that treatment not just to citizens but to all people and these nationalist tendencies sort of bring us backwards like at least or at least away from individualism right is that if somebody pays lip service to things like markets or individualism but then ultimately looks at the success of quote the nation ahead of everything else that we're, we're sort of going backwards and away from individualism again yes yes i mean i i would yield to nobody in terms of admiration for what the United States has done. Uh, I think that the American experiment in government has been a fantastically successful and hopeful one, and one that uh, that uh, I, I take some pride in, even as I recognize that it's not really my creation. Uh, I'm I'm happy to to live in that society, but. Uh, I will say that that uh, that sense of pride is in part derived from the fact that the United States incorporates just the sorts of principles that I am talking about into its government. Uh, it does not say in the U.S. Constitution that all rights are reserved for citizens. It does not say that you have to be of a certain blood or from a certain family or have some certain rank or belong to a particular religion. It declares in the First Amendment that Congress shall make no law that infringes upon certain rights, including the, the freedom of, of the press and of speech and of, of religion. Uh, what that means is that the freedom created by these words is open to everyone. Uh, that I think is the type of uh, the type of uh, 
perspective that is is very valuable here and needs to be kept. Right, and also that the the, the founding documents are ultimately documents of restraint rather than licenses for the government to do certain things, which is I think is, is very interesting. The whole thing is about what it shouldn't be doing ultimately. Well, there are enumerated powers, right. but what's very interesting is that there are not. Uh, there is not a fully enumerated set of rights. On the contrary, there's an explicit acknowledgement that the rights that are granted are uh, only a subset of the rights that people enjoy by virtue of being people. Mm. So it says in the Ninth Amendment, the enumeration in this constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And the people here is is people. It is not merely the citizens or only the citizens or citizens who have reached a certain age or or anything like that. It is people. Not not people with a certain passport, not people that worship a certain way, not, not any of that. It's, it's pretty much... That's correct. It's, they're un, universal principles. Some things are, of course, reserved to citizens. Those mm-hmm. include voting. Uh, those include service uh, as, as uh, an elected official. Uh, but uh, that, I think, is proper. That, that I think, concerns uh, the organization of a republic and the creation of, of uh, rights that are particular to the republic. But there's no reason why natural rights should be constrained only to citizens. And in fact, they are not. And, and as, as you progress throughout the book, back to the technology discussion, of course, you say, OK, nobody's ever been to Utopia, so no one could come back to us and report what it looks like. But but you still think that there's a strong case to be made that as, as we approach uh, a world that, that looks a lot better than it is now, you see less and less of a role for government because of technology. That's that's one of the main, main things you discuss in the book. Uh, you talked about uh, tra- traffic before and roads uh, right now in, in most places we, we literally have people sitting on a highway in a, in a police cruiser uh, scanning for speeders going to pull them over or looking for things putting aside the discussion as whether or not we, we need public roads and if they could be private or not we could still envision however the arrangement is a, a roadway for instance where this is taken care of by technology we don't need a, a large state apparatus of law enforcement uh, figuring out who, who's, who's speeding and not so, so that was an interesting part of the book i found is that when you really start thinking of the the, the components that could be replaced, not not wholesale, but just bit by bit. I thought that was very intriguing. Yes, and and I think that uh, I would I would break down the road example into two parts. First, uh, most traffic enforcement is not because the state cares so much about people driving safely. It's pretextual. It exists because they are hoping to search the car for contraband. Right. Uh, in at least my humble version of utopia, uh, there would be a whole lot less contraband. I would legalize recreational drugs for adults and permit you to take them in your car. And so the pretext that we stop cars because they are speeding would not need to be used. We would perhaps have some degree of traffic enforcement in that regard, but uh, the way that it is done now is uh, primarily uh, with a view to eventually getting to conduct searches and to uh, to get to uh, look people up in a database and see if they've uh, they've done anything that uh, they shouldn't have done by the lights of the current government. So uh, that's uh, that's something I would would want to set aside as as a particular case. But uh, on the other hand, there are traffic lights 
and there are traffic signs, and there are uh, many, many, many laws that govern how we operate vehicles on the road, which uh, were implemented a very long time ago, generally in the first half of the 20th century. They are uh, commonly not followed all that well by everyone. We have figured out ways of driving relatively safely despite that. Uh, we ought to think about lessening the uh, cost of compliance with those laws. We ought to think about uh, more efficient arrangements of, of our roadways so that uh, the contact between uh, citizens and the state there is, is minimized. I've, I've read several very interesting books about the subject recently, and uh, uh, including uh, a few that have come out recently uh, since my book has been published. And I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, they prove what I say in the book uh, to have been right. And the, the, the technology angle is very interesting, too, because if you look back, there were some economists even that were thinking of how certain aspects of the, the economy could re be replaced by technology. For instance, like uh, Milton, Milton Friedman talked about the Federal Reserve towards the end of his life. He said if he had his way, if if we were to have a Federal Reserve, he'd prefer it be replaced by a computer. I think that interview I'm thinking of was in the 90s. He didn't know about cryptocurrency at the time. That was much later on. But now uh, the idea might become um, more interesting to even people that aren't uh, coming to the table against something like a central bank. It, the, the idea might be more appealing that you can even replace a, a currency with a, a form of a, a cryptocurrency. And that's another thing you touched on in your book, too. So, so even some of the, the fundamental uh, structures and things we use to, to operate our lives on a daily basis uh, that basically rest as foundations that we stand on, those can also be, be replaced, or, or at least there's interesting possibilities to do so. Yes, and, and uh, it is not a trivial accomplishment to achieve some measure of distance from the government. And, and what I mean by that is uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, at least, uh, at least uh, Ethereum, for example, uh, allow the... Uh, creation and enforcement of contracts on the blockchain and which uh, two individuals who want to make a contract with one another can appoint a third individual as an arbitrator and the arbitrator is responsible for exactly one thing. It's thumbs up or thumbs down about whether the terms of the contract have been fulfilled. And uh, provided that they agree on that, the rest is uh, the rest is self-enforcing. The money goes where it is supposed to go, uh, dependent on the arbitrator's determination. Well, if if that's the case, then uh, we are well removed from the government. We are in a realm of essentially private law. It might happen that some business arising in a context like this needs to be adjudicated by the state, but it's not obvious that all things that are in this area need to be adjudicated by the state. On the contrary, uh, it seems like if everything goes as people expect, nothing needs to be adjudicated by the state. So uh, even if the state exists uh, very much in the background, as opposed to completely disappearing, that's, uh, that's still a win in my book. That's still a, a victory, I think. And I think this ties nicely into another main question that's brought up in your book. You basically ask, okay, it, 
is there a central uh, feature of society of, of almost hu- human uh, human nature something that drives us and ultimately you said, like trade is a central feature of a society so the idea is that any th- if there are things we can do to sort of uh, sh- shrink the government or, or get rid of certain components of the state um, as long as we all understand that trade is sort of a, a central feature something we want to enable th- then a lot of things essentially go from there a lot of solutions can can come from the market uh, and, and especially when technology is involved. Yeah, it's it's gotten so little love from political theorists. Political theorists tend to view trade with a great deal of suspicion. And so Rousseau, in writing about, uh, writing about commerce, views it as uh, essentially the downfall of humanity, that uh, it brings vice and corruption. And his ideal is the Spartan Republic in which... Uh, in which uh, commercial activity was severely restricted. Uh, and yet, even when we look at societies that are, are premised on the idea that trade is inherently exploitative, we find trade springing up anyway. Uh, one of the examples I use in, in the book is that uh, in uh, places like communist East Germany, uh, you would go to a factory and uh, people would have their various rules that were set by the government. And then there'd be a guy who had a very informal job. His job isn't set by the government. His job would be to store up products in some corner of the factory uh, to do under the table trades with other people who had exactly the same function that he did in neighboring factories. So I got a carton of bolts and I can't use them and nobody at the factory really needs them, I put them aside. And someone may come along and ask for exactly that specification of bolt, and I have it. And what I need instead is paper, and they have it. And uh, and so trade takes place. And uh, it often seemed, uh, at least to uh, the uh, investigators who were looking into this phenomenon, that uh, the East German system could hardly have functioned without these individuals. Uh, Even when we try to get rid of trade, even when the state is ideologically uh, opposed to this sort of activity, it keeps coming back. It is remarkably hard to repress. And uh, that might be telling us something. That might be uh, might be a message we need to heed. One one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading the book is that if we talk about trade sort of as intrinsic to human nature, as you said, there's examples of even where trade is basically uh, suppressed, uh, it still kind of pops up. People just seem to do it. Um, we obviously assume that at that point that it's desirable to have a framework that allows trade to flourish. Even if we end up at a point where uh, technology is enabling uh, basically society run, we can have a, a cryptocurrency, we can have a, a lot of you know, traffic enforcement done by by uh, robots and artificial intelligence. We, we can envision a world in the future uh, where there's there's barely or, or even no uh, government or, or, quote, state to think of in our lives. But would a new framework that allows trade to happen ultimately just be some sort of a state, but kind of in another form? Well, I guess this is why I ultimately say that I'm an agnarchist. Right. Because it seems likely that we uh, we can't answer that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, seems, it seems that uh, the particular way that we deploy force 
Uh, we deploy a, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, uh, to use Weber's definition, uh, may not be around forever. It hasn't always existed in human history. There have been stateless societies. There have been societies in which uh, there was such a diffusion of the legitimate apparatus of coercion that it's not clear exactly what entity within the society constituted the state, if any of them did. And uh, if we move back in that direction, it may not, in fact, be a calamity. It may be uh, an improvement. And I think this goes back to what you were saying before, is that once again, uh, we we shouldn't look at this stuff as a set bundle or, or a monolithic entity. It's, it's about components, right? It's about looking at the bundle that is the state and looking at where are the best cases for technology or a market-driven solution to, to basically replace the state, as opposed to saying this is the answer for everything. Yes, yes. And you don't have to be an ideologically committed libertarian to favor solutions that are less state involved. Uh, mm -hmm. When uh, someone who's not an ideologically committed libertarian conducts a transaction using a cryptocurrency, uh, they're not making a political statement. They are mm -hmm. using the uh, means at their disposal that seems best to them to uh, meet a particular end. And uh, that is something that uh, over time, and if it's done frequently enough, becomes a norm. It doesn't, it doesn't have to proceed uh, along ideological lines. It can simply be a matter of revealed preference. And, and by these sorts of revealed preferences, uh, things really do change. It gives credence to the idea that in order for us to figure out what the best uh, in institutions or the best systems are when it comes to economic activity, we, of course, need um, a marketplace to test out the different solutions. We can't just have a, a committee of people sitting around and saying, oh, OK, let's try this for five years. Yes, yes. The first order, the first order uh, uh, understanding of our, of our framework here is we ought to be trying to compete with state solutions on a voluntary basis. Mm -hmm. We ought to be providing or coming up with ways that ordinary non-ideological people would find more appealing to get done what they need to get done without coercion. And if we can do that, then the world will change in that area. The uh, sort of second order concern is that uh, we ought to take care that existing states do not interfere with that process, that uh, states do not uh, foreclose non-state solutions, which which presumably they would be inclined to do. Uh, nobody likes competition, right? And 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 basically, of course, the the best way to convince other people that perhaps a non-state solution is the best way to go is to actually either prove in advance or as it going along that it isn't in fact better. It's it's no help to come to the table and basically say, well, well, it's the state doing it, therefore it's bad. It'd, it'd be good to have the facts on our side, and oftentimes these facts are borne out by the market. Yes. One one thing I did want to touch on with you uh, when it came to technology itself was was the idea that oftentimes technology isn't uh, neutral. It's it's often created by uh, a party or an entity. It could be a company. It could be an innovator that that has a has a goal in mind. Of course, the goal may be to, be to improve something, you know, to make a better widget or a more fuel efficient, whatever it may be, but they ultimately have the the profit motive in mind. And this is an objection that I think a, a lot of people would have. So we come up with these great technological uh, alternatives to government functions or even patrolling a road, let's say, but ultimately there is a... Uh, 
a uh, vested interest behind that technology and and of course that that's okay in and of itself but uh how, is is the solution to make sure that we still have a framework that uh ensures that particular interests can't uh supersede other ones well i i think so i think that uh, this is often talked about in the context of the law of equal freedom in political theory that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, normatively speaking each individual in the political community ought to have the maximum liberty that is compatible with a like liberty for others and if that is respected then uh, it might be the case that some people do become very very wealthy uh, we ought to uh, presumably allow that everyone has the right to attempt to enrich themselves mm-hmm. uh, certainly it has been the case that very very wealthy people in history have formed a sort of unholy alliance with the state where they try to uh, get the state to serve their own particular business or personal interests and mm-hmm. that is something to be resisted of course that's uh, that's a genuine danger uh, but the mere act of getting wealthy, if it is done in a way that respects the rights of others, that is an indication that not only the individual has done well, but they've done well for other people. Right. They have benefited other people. My question also is based on the fact that it seems that a, a lot of people uh, that are proponents of markets might think that any move of a certain function of the state or or any other part of the economy moving to the private sphere is necessarily a good thing in and of itself, when in reality that move to the private sphere might not really be a move to, to the full private sphere. As you said, it may be uh, heavily intertwined with with some government involvement, some monopolistic privilege. So I think it's it's also incumbent on libertarians to be very careful about what exactly they're talking about when they see something move to a private sphere. If it ends up being some sort of corporatism or, as you said, special privilege, this is still stuff we have to be careful about. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to suggest uh, if it's private, it's good automatically and, mm-hmm. and simply by virtue of that. Uh, I do mean to suggest that there are inherent problems to using the state and potentially better solutions can be found in the private sector. Uh, That's a much, much more modest claim. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are certainly private ways of dealing with state business that would be terrible. Uh, Yes. Not all private solutions are by virtue of being private better. As time winds down here, and as we're heading towards the end of our discussion, I want to tie it back to the the initial question, what what is government for? Um, Is is the question sort of in its own way ironic or maybe potentially slightly flawed? Because it sort of presupposes, okay, government, right? We're back to that one entity, that one idea again. Is government, as you were saying, ultimately for society to decide when it's needed and when it's not. It's not just an on-off switch that we say, oh, government good, government bad. It's more of, once again, uh, it's for us to decide how it's run and and what components of it can still survive. And of course, put it up against, as you said, uh, competition to better against better solutions. Yes, it is in a sense a, uh, a malformed question because uh, it turns out that when it comes to government, there's no there there. There's not an underlying purpose. There's not an underlying Hmm. teleology to it. There's no final cause that government is always aiming at. Uh, We might wish there to be one. We might think that there ought to be one, but 
when we're in that position, we are in competition with many, many, many others who have different ideas and uh, they can't all be reconciled. Instead, government is, is best thought of as a method. It's a method for solving problems that are particularly difficult. And the method consists of putting people in cages and hurting them if they don't behave in a certain way. Right. Uh, we uh, may think that that's the best method that we have. Uh, we ought not to be too sure of that answer. And we ought to uh, regard it with some uh, mix of resignation and, and disgust when we reach for this method. Because after all, we are putting people in cages and hurting them. And right. uh, that's never something to be proud of. Right. People who uh, try to exalt the state, people who talk about it as being some uh, pathway to a higher truth or realization or greater state of human development, uh, this is something that we ought to view with great suspicion. The state is a last resort. The state is uh, essentially an admission of failure. Uh, even even uh, parents who spank their children will tell you by the time that you actually spank your child, you've done something probably wrong along the way. It is sort of an admission of failure as well. Uh, we ought to look at government similarly, that uh, once we have resolved to reach for the state to solve a particular problem, we are admitting that we have no particularly good solutions to the problem and, and we are left with just putting people in cages and hurting them as our answer. Uh, why anyone would take any pride in that is is frankly beyond me. Right. Yeah. And I, I did enjoy that part in your book where you basically said, and you touched on it just a little earlier here, that if we do look at it as a last resort, and it's ultimately a coercive last resort, we should uh, feel a shame that we had to reach for this uh, method because ultimately that means the other methods have failed, or at least ones that we have available to us at present have failed. So it's not so much of a, of a celebration when you reach for, oh, let's get government to do this. It should be more of a, oh, great, now we have to get the government to do this if there's no other alternative. Yes. And uh, we ought to think very carefully about what other alternatives might exist that would either require less of the state or no state action at all. One of the examples that I use that I think is probably the best in all of history in that second category is religion. For mm. a very long time, it was thought that government had to play an active role in religion and that religion and government were mutually reinforcing. And if there was not a state religion that was enforced through censorship and compulsory attendance and oaths to subscribe to particular religious doctrines, if we did away with all of that, there would be no stable social order at all. Well, this rationale for state action was abundantly falsified during the Enlightenment when mm -hmm. you see the rise of the uh, non-confessional state, the state that, uh, in fact, says uh, we don't have a role to play in religion, and uh, states that went this route found that, uh, first of all, yes, there's still a social order. Second, the government is not, for all that, obviously worse than other governments. And third, piety as a private exercise remained quite vigorous. It remained quite sincere, perhaps more sincere than it had been. And uh, the social order, the government, 
and individual piety could all survive a diversity of religious beliefs. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great example because ultimately is it is a proof point in discussing if we move something to a private sphere, does society collapse? No, and I think especially hundreds of years ago, people's personal belief and worship, that's, 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 this is no, and people of course take it very seriously today, uh, this is no small part of someone's life. So we're basically saying now today, most of us, that this belongs in the private sphere, it's it's not for government to handle, and as you said, the, the world has not collapsed in, in many countries that, that went this route. Yeah, I I think that uh, the diversity and vigor of religious belief in the United States has has provided a model for that. We have in the United States uh, old religions side by side with very new ones. We have uh, a relatively more religious population than many countries in Europe. Uh, we, I think, reached that point perhaps because we allowed competition back when uh, many European countries did not allow competition. Right. When uh, it, it may have appeared, at least in the uh, 18th century in Europe, that, uh, gosh, if, if uh, this is what religion is, then so much the worse for religion. We should all be uh, atheists or secularists of some sort. And uh, and the desecularization of Europe may have uh, followed in part from that state involvement in religion. Right, as you said, there, there's effectively a, there's a market for religion in the United States. It's a it's a great example. I think, and I forget what the percentage is, so I'm not going to say it to to make it wrong. But but a high percentage of people switch religions within their lifetime. I read the statistic once, and although some some people may may look at that as a bad thing, another way to look at that is. People are able to follow their conscience and, and choose the solution that works best for them. They're they're able to move with their preferences between institutions and and, and, a, and a way of life, perhaps. So I think that that's a very good thing, as opposed to as you said, a state saying, "Here's the solution." Yes, in the United States, it's it's relatively common. I don't have uh, I don't have a number on that uh, in the book or otherwise in front of me, but uh, but my understanding is that 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 is true. Uh, moreover, uh, we ought to question how much any particular religion would want a uh, seat in a pew to be taken up by someone simply because they're ordered to be there. Right. Uh, do you do you want insincere believers? Is that is that really what you want? Uh, I would think that you would prefer one sincere believer to a uh, hundred who were just there because it was the thing the government told them that they needed to do. We, we've talked about a lot in this conversation. Um, I always like to bring it full circle if we can, and try and put a finer point on everything we've talked about. So I always like to, to place it like this. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what government is for, if, if, we, if you can do our best to try and summarize everything? Well, we have seen in the course of Western political theory a great deal of faith placed in government. The faith was often justified with reference to things that were imaginary, things like numerology, things like astrology, things like uh, the belief in scientific socialism that would provide us with uh, a technology that uh, solved human social problems. We don't have that kind of technology. It is comforting to imagine that we have it, but we don't. As a result, the emperor has no clothes. We ought to consider that the government is not the first best solution to our problems, and reaching for government to solve problems 
is not something that we do in triumph or something that we do uh, with a kind of, of, of divine mission about it. It's a last resort. It's something that we ought to recognize is somewhat embarrassing. In fact, uh, there's nothing glorious about government. Government is what happens when we cannot settle problems through reason or cooperation or bargaining or any of the methods that a uh, an alien visiting Earth might say were the more civilized ones. Government is organized and rationalized violence. Why we would take pride in that is, is beyond me. Uh, rather than doing so, let's consider that the voluntary parts of society are the morally superior ones, presumptively, and uh, work to expand those. And, and let's just give them a chance, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Jason Kuznicki, thank you very much for talking with me on The Curious Task today. Thank you.